0: Good day. Welcome back to New Books in History, a podcast channel on New Books Network. My name is Dr. Charles Cotillo of the Royal Historical Society. I'm a host on the channel, and today I'm pleased to have with us Professor Jeffrey Sachs of Columbia University. And we are, speaking, uh, we are going to be speaking about uh, his new book, A New Foreign Policy Beyond American Exceptionalism. Welcome, Professor Sachs.
1: Good to be with you. Thank you very much.
0: Professor Sachs may I ask uh what is the primary thesis of your book
1: The primary idea is that uh American foreign policy has been become dysfunctional for America and for the world We are uh still in thrall to the idea that America is exceptional the world's sole superpower the one that doesn't really have to agree or cooperate or follow international rules. As President Trump recently said, uh, we're sovereign, we'll do what we want. And uh, I trace this idea uh, through American history and uh, explain where it came from and why it is so dangerously outmoded today
0: isn't there an argument though that uh, the type of uh, ill behavior that you describe by American leaders in the post-1945 period, uh, I believe you use um, the wording quote, the inherent right to make and break international rules of the game unquote. Isn't that what all great power, hegemonic powers do and isn't really a sort of um, American form of naivete to think otherwise?
1: Uh, Well, it 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 may be, but in a nuclear age, in an age of uh, the dangers of uh, mass environmental disruption uh, in a world of 7.6 billion people, uh, I think it's not uh, naivete to say we had better press for a rule of law and global cooperation and uh, for all of the major powers, and there are several now, this is one of the big points about America not being the only one, Uh, we had better reinforce the ideas of the United Nations and a charter uh, and a security council and so forth, uh, lest we end up with disaster. So it, it may sound like naivete to say haven't great powers always waged wars and behaved like they want? And the answer may be yes, but the stakes have never been higher. And the dangers of that kind of uh, balance or imbalance of power approach, I think, have never been greater.
0: Can you discuss what you refer to as the, quote, three competing versions of America's place in the world, unquote?
1: There are uh, three different ideas. I call them uh, exceptionalism, realism, and internationalism. Uh, exceptionalism is the idea that America is just uh, number one. Uh, it is the global colossus. We do what we want. Uh, Trump is a version of that, although a somewhat unusual version, but a version. Uh, the second is realism or balance of power. Politics Uh That says basically powers will be powers. Don't expect uh, good behavior, be on guard, Uh, keep your uh, military strong, and uh, don't expect the best. And internationalism, uh, which I would put myself uh, in uh, that category, says that we have so many uh, deep, crucial uh, interconnections now, We have such an urgent need to find uh, common understanding and common ground. We have so many ways to destroy each other and uh, cannot rely on uh, the uh, supposedly realistic, quote, balance of power that we had better reinforce the admittedly uh, fragile uh, rule of international law. Uh, and behavior within an agreed charter, the United Nations Charter. So the real idea is a a debate uh, that is, I think, rampant among these three views. You find strong proponents uh, of uh, at least the first two, and and I hope enough of the third, which I belong to, And my argument is that the first two views, especially the America can do what it wants view, which is understandable from a historical point of view, is really out of date and out of whack now. But it still is perhaps the guiding principle of the country.
0: You say that Chinese actions in the South China Sea and Russian actions in Ukraine are, quote, responses to U.S. actions, unquote, which particular U.S. actions are you referring to?
1: Well, the U.S. is the only uh, global military bases all over the world with troops all over the world with nuclear capacity all over the world. So from the point of view of any other country, the U.S. is uh, always hovering close by and not in such a friendly way. We have uh, perhaps 800 military bases around the world, and they are in more than 70 countries. Uh, When any other country asserts its uh, strategic region or its no-go zone, the United States says, aha, you see how aggressive they are. So China absolutely worries about the U.S. control of the high seas around China uh, through a string of uh, military bases and alliances. Uh, China absolutely is trying to uh, expand its naval and military presence, uh, if nothing else, I would say, uh, to ensure that it, uh, as a major trading country, uh, has uh, the ability to Repulse uh, any attempt to uh, basically corner China. Russia is uh, a different case where Russia has been invaded uh, from the West repeatedly in modern history, uh, whether Napoleon or Hitler. It has always viewed uh, Ukraine or even Eastern Europe, uh, therefore, as a kind of protection and buffer from uh, the powers of Western Europe. What the United States has done in the last uh, 25 years since the fall of the Soviet Union is to push the military alliance, NATO, closer and closer to the Russian border. And when, in 2008, the United States proposed that Ukraine actually become a member of NATO. From Russia's point of view, that's something like uh, China proposing that Mexico should become part of a Chinese alliance and expecting the United States to say, well, that's fine. They can do what they want. Uh, It wasn't fine for Russia that both Ukraine and Georgia were invited into the U.S., military alliance right on russia's borders and i think it provoked a very dangerous and serious counter-reaction that we're still feeling today
0: uh i suppose that uh, without getting on this particular tangent um because your book is about many more things um i suppose it could be argued that in the case of the south china seas that it's not only the united states but uh, other regional uh countries like japan south korea philippines Singapore, Australia, who are all very concerned in the case of Japan, more concerned the United States about chinese um, mil um, expansion, naval expansion um, overflights, etc, uh the creation of uh, military bases on these islands uh, et cetera so it's not merely american uh concern I suppose in the I case- think
1: that's exactly right uh, by the way, uh, but it's also the case that The U.S. uh, has gone out of its way on many occasions basically to say uh, to other powers like China, you're on the other side. We are uh, the ones that are going to call the shots, even uh, with uh, Obama uh, and the uh, attempt to negotiate a uh, trade deal called uh, the Trans Pacific Partnership. The stated purpose of TPP was we will be in, we'll get other countries in and China will be out and we will call the shots and set the rules. I thought it was rather crude (laughs) way to put things, basically a declaration of who's going to uh, run the show. And to my mind, this is the U S style everywhere in every part of the world. Uh, We need to show our uh, military presence, our financial weight, and for many Americans, gee, that's just exactly as it should be. That's our power. We should use it. To my view, it uh, ends up costing a fortune and ends up every now and then in a disaster, a, a real war uh, a, uh, uh, a major conflict, uh, and the idea that more or less we can just, uh, continue to manage this way, uh, in my view is naive, even when we had the great power, realist balance of power of the 19th century, which is what the, uh, that middle group the realists uh, looked to as their model the metternich diplomacy of 19th century europe uh that ended up collapsing in world war 1 uh because balance of power is not a balance in my view it is a very unstable uh shaky uh um, imbalance uh that eventually it leads to explosion of conflict and my fear is that in the 21st century with uh, nuclear weapons everywhere and with significant powers everywhere uh, it would make uh, 1914 uh, unfortunately look like a, a small show and relying therefore on Big powers facing off against each other uh, in a traditional way just strikes me as a, a reckless gamble uh
0: how would or how do you differentiate between trumpian exceptionalism from the classical historical sort of exceptionalism
1: I would say that from nineteen forty five till Trump, <laughs> we had a uh, an uneasy uh, relationship between a superpower that asserted its unilateral uh, claims of uh, power with a superpower that built an international rule-based system. Uh, it was the genius of Franklin Roosevelt that Gave us the United Nations. After all, uh, it was several presidents that negotiated major agreements like the World Trade Organization. Uh, the United States never completely adhered to the rules that we insisted on and set, uh, but there was always a an uneasy uh, relationship where we didn't want to stray too far from global norms and global processes that, after all, the United States had done so much to establish. Things have gotten worse progressively over time, I would argue, especially at the end of the Cold War when the Soviet Union uh, dissolved in uh, December 1991. Uh, There was a, a period of incredible hubris in the United States, uh, marked by the so-called neoconservatives that said, we are the new Rome. We are the global colossus. We are the uh, sole superpower of the world. Now we can do what we want. We launched wars. We tried to overthrow governments. We got ourselves deeply enmeshed in the violence of the Middle East. I would say that was our cause. We launched unprovoked wars, as in Iraq in 2003, and many regime change operations as in Syria and Libya in 2011, I think it's been uh, a debacle. But even in those moments, there was at least some attempt, though it waxed and waned, to follow international principles. Trump was pretty explicit at the United Nations uh, just recently when he said, I don't believe in this global governance. I'm a patriot. We have sovereignty. We are independent. No one will tell us what to do. I think it's simple-minded, this idea that being sovereign means uh, you don't agree on principles, that there aren't international rules and international law. Trump, in my view, is the most vulgar uh, president we've had, certainly in my lifetime and in, in modern history. And the vulgarity shows in this contempt for following principles, because this seems to be foreign to his idea of personal behavior, as well as his idea of what the United States government should do. He likes the deal. The deal is you rough up your uh, counterparts, you punch them up a bit, uh, you uh, try to trip them up, and then maybe you settle. But the idea is that it's all the deal. And if you follow rules, you're a weakling. Uh, You're uh, an innocent. Uh, You're a naif. And I just find this extraordinary uh, at a time when the U.S., uh, even if it somehow uh, wanted to, does not have the economic weight, the power, nor the right uh, to uh, dictate uh, global development in this way.
0: In the book, you cite several times with approval uh, the theologian Reinhold Niebuhr, um Can you explain to the audience uh, why that is the case?
1: Nibor was one of the great public intellectuals uh, in the uh, middle of the 20th century. And he, as a theologian, uh, viewed public affairs from uh, an ethical and moral point of view, as well as a practical point of view, and his great strength was That he was both a pragmatist in his thinking, but uh, viewed morality not as a nice thing, but as a really practical and helpful guide for action. His thought at the peak of American relative power, which came just after World War II, when we were the only major power that had not been destroyed by the war after all, and we were in our full technological. Dominance and our full industrial uh, power, Nabor said, This is not so good. This looks good, but this is what leads to hubris and massive overreach. And Nabor warned against the uh, idea that America, as this exceptionalist country, should and would be able to tell the rest of the world what to do. So I think he had a a lot of foresight uh, because when he was making these warnings, the U.S. really was very, very powerful and in relative terms, much more powerful than it is today. In Trump's view and in the view of the neoconservatives, by the way, the U.S. basically remains that preeminent power. Whereas for me as an economist, I see that the U.S. relative predominance has diminished markedly over time. So what was, in a sense, true as a description at the end of World War II, when the U.S. was the only one standing, and in the early 1950s, when the U.S. was way ahead technologically of the rest of the world, that's no longer the case. But we act still as if it is. We tell other countries what to do. We decide which uh, treaties uh, we're going to agree to and not. We tell other countries, don't tell the United States what to do, because the underlying ideas were so powerful, we should do what we want to do uh, and quote what's best for the United States at uh, any time instant without being bogged down by all these little powers trying to or all these little countries trying to uh, weaken us uh, that in in my view as an economist is an extraordinarily outdated point of view and i don't think it was ever right uh, after all at the peak of the power was franklin roosevelt who said let's have an international rule-based system he didn't say now we can do anything we want Quite the opposite. He created the UN with its charter of behavior, but it's more and more unrealistic as you have other parts of the world, and of course, notably China, gaining in technological, economic, and financial weight.
0: Uh, although it could be argued that in the case of Nibor, as well as someone else who you cite with approval, George Kennan, that um, uh they both um, campaigned against and were dis- disproving of uh, Henry Wallace, who I think uh, many would argue was the true heir and not Harry Truman of fdr's internationalist policies
1: truman uh exactly uh, had both sides truman uh is uh, <coughs> excuse me both uh <coughs> credited and uh, blamed for uh, uh in in a way uh, um making the cold war credited in uh, the view of uh, I would say the mainstream that uh he had a realistic uh, view of uh, Stalin who who obviously was a, a true psychopath uh and he had a realistic view of uh, Soviet uh imperial uh reach uh and he resisted it so that's the mainstream and the counterpart is that the united states uh, lost opportunities to uh find a, a peaceful resolution well before the cold war spiraled into an absolutely terrifying nuclear arms race that uh, actually on several occasions came close to uh ending us all. And of course, Kennan, by the 1950s, as I mentioned in the book, had turned against the very foreign policy that he's associated with of containment of the Soviet Union and saying, we've militarized something we should never have militarized. It's gotten way out of control. And there actually is a political solution with the Soviet Union if we seek it, By finding a way essentially uh, to solve uh, the Soviet uh, security challenge of a resurgent German power and economy. Well, that takes us back to issues of a half century ago. But Kennan was uh, not a hardliner. uh, And he thought that we missed real opportunities for making peace and that the Cold War got uh, extraordinarily dangerously out of hand, something that I uh, subscribe to.
0: You cite the Libyan intervention of 2011 as a prima facie example of American meddling and propensity for regime change. But isn't it the case that, in fact, the United States was extremely reluctant to become involved in that conflict? and only did so at the behest of the British and the French. And indeed, those powers, um, as well as um, uh, powers in the Gulf and other European NATO uh, partners, were much more involved uh, in that conflict than the United States?
1: Well, I think uh, Obama was reluctant. I think Hillary Clinton was enthusiastic. Everything we know... uh, tells us that she more or less convinced uh, Obama to go ahead with this. This was a uh, uh, an initiative, if one could put it that way, of uh, the French President uh, Sarkozy, uh, who uh, decided he wanted to uh, dump Gaddafi. There are many theories why. One of them actually is that... Uh, Uh, Qaddafi was uh, threatening to come forward with uh, the evidence that he had helped fund Sarkozy's presidential campaign. This is uh, widely rumored, though I don't know whether it's true or not. But in any event, this was a French initiative, uh, and uh, Obama was a reluctant warrior in this case, but sent in NATO, and in the end, it was really U.S. uh, military uh, role in NATO in uh, the air war that ended up toppling uh, the regime. I think it was a vulgar, stupid, costly uh, exercise uh, in uh, gross, internationally illegal uh, power. Uh, it's true that it didn't originate in this case with Obama, but it fit uh This kind of American foreign policy mode, though Obama was usually a hand-wringing, reluctant warrior at this, it's not unlike what happened in Syria as well, uh, where uh, President Obama was not very enthusiastic, but uh, our allies, if you could call it that, Saudi Arabia and Turkey uh, and Israel wanted to overthrow The Syrian regime, and Obama did not want to put uh, troops on the ground, but he did end up signing a a presidential finding that uh, ordered the CIA to cooperate with Saudi Arabia and Turkey to uh, provide logistics, weapons, and training to an insurrection to overthrow the Syrian government. Again, completely illegal from an international point of view, and utterly a failure and debacle in the end that created a proxy war in Syria, brought in the Russians, uh, created uh, the space for the radical uh, ISIS offshoot of Al-Qaeda, which was operating there with a lot of Saudi money uh, backing the jihadists. In the end, this is... uh, U.S. meddling, a foreign policy that, uh, reluctant or not, says the way you handle a regime you don't like is to try to overthrow it. That's American exceptionalism. Almost no other country could even imagine such a foreign policy, by the way. But this is the norm of American foreign policy. If you don't like them, overthrow them. And you get the drumbeat of uh, war from the Wall Street Journal, which every few months wants to overthrow another country, another country's government. The end result has been 25 years of nonstop violence in the Middle East, no solutions to anything, trillions of dollars spent by the United States. And we're still in this mess with at least some real risk of A new war with Iran uh, because there are a lot of people in the administration, perhaps the president himself, who uh, would like to see the overthrow of the Iranian regime. And so uh, I don't know how much credit I give uh, President Obama, not very much, for being reluctant in all of this. It's true he was more restrained than a hardcore warrior president would have been, much more restrained. But on the other hand, he took his foot off the brake uh, and uh, let the war machine in both Libya and Syria and continue in Iraq and continue in Afghanistan and continue uh, in uh, many other uh, covert operations uh, throughout the Middle East and North Africa. So I I don't give a lot of high points for reluctance in that case.
0: Uh, Without uh, getting bogged down in the intricacies of what happened in Syria, uh, you're not persuaded of the argument that, uh, A, there was a um, civil war which broke out in Syria because of the policies of the Assad regime um, and that uh, it was in that context uh, that the United States became involved reluctantly and Halfheartedly, heartedly as opposed to other countries that you cite particularly Saudi Arabia Turkey um Qatar uh who became involved much earlier and much more um wholeheartedly
1: one of the unfortunate realities of America these days is it's very hard to know everything that really happens because while we absolutely know of the CIA's operations uh, in Syria with the explicit purpose of overthrowing the Assad regime. We do not have a proper accounting ex post or even continuing of what the heck we've been doing there. So I can't give a definitive answer because we don't know Because we run a secret foreign policy and we run covert wars. So how much, when, exactly which arms went, exactly who was first, not first, it is hard to say. Uh, Our mainstream uh, press has done a miserable job uh, on reporting this. 95% of the time they called it a civil war when obviously it was not a civil war. Obviously, it was a war of many regional uh, powers and the United States and Russia. That's not a civil war. And my view is that while there were definitely protests uh, against Assad, uh, we turned what would have been repression into a regional war that's a big difference uh, assad would probably pretty brutally have uh, crushed whatever opposition uh, and uh that would not have uh, been pleasant but instead uh, we've now had seven years of mass opened bloodshed hundreds of thousands dead 10 million displaced that's worse And that's what we created by the hubris of saying, as President Obama did in mid-2011, Assad must go. I remember the first time I heard him say it. I thought that is absurd and dangerous. It's absurd because it should not be the business of the United States president to say who must go of other countries' leaders. Second, I thought it was extremely dangerous because I said at the time, and I've said until today, we don't have the power to do it, but it will lead to mass violence. And so it has, and we don't have a proper accounting of it, and we don't even have a proper public understanding of it because for some reason, we cannot analyze ourselves anymore in this country. and. We don't even analyze what we contribute to of these messes. We don't go back to understand Libya. We don't go back to understand Syria. Uh, We accept that Iraq was a disaster, but more or less leave it at that. We don't care to have an accounting of how many countries the CIA is operating in right now. We don't have any congressional oversight over any of it. And so we have uh, this... I uh, I would say not in control foreign policy environment that is absolutely uh destabilizing and ill suited to our real needs and in addition to everything else a phenomenal distraction from real problems like uh, environmental disasters that are hitting the world or epidemic diseases that are breaking out and that need to be controlled or the instability of mass migration, which uh, you should handle at its core of the reasons for it rather than grabbing kids from parents' arms. So because we're so bad at analyzing any of this right now in a normal public discussion, I feel that the foreign policy is uh, getting uh, more and more deranged. Now it's in the hands of uh, one person uh, that we can't even figure out day to day.
0: Can you tell the audience why Donald Trump's views and, for that matter, policies on foreign trade are, to be polite about it, nonsensical?
1: Well, Donald Trump uh, absolutely understands nothing about uh, foreign trade, but he's fixated on one extraordinarily uh, bad idea. And that is that if the United States runs a trade deficit with another country or with the world, it means that the world is cheating. The United States uh, and stealing jobs from the United States. And it's hard to know exactly where to start uh, with this misunderstanding because what a deficit on our international account means is that we are spending more than we're producing, or to put it another way, we're investing more than we're saving. And therefore, we're borrowing from the rest of the world to buy goods from abroad. It has more to do with our uh, low saving rates, our budget deficits, uh, our uh, uh, inability to uh, limit our consumption than it does with any nefarious practices of other countries. But Trump is a kind of paranoid, and he takes this number, which he doesn't understand, and then turns it into a grievance and into a bitter complaint. And uh, this this becomes the basis of policy. Now, he's also, in my mind, uh, (laughs) really uh, weird and uh, difficult to understand individual at the individual level because uh he likes show and um perhaps uh, if you just rebrand a few words uh things are okay in his mind so he attacked Canada of all countries and railed against Canada and uh, called the North American Free Trade Agreement the worst agreement ever made and then lo and behold, uh, negotiated uh, something uh, (laughs) that has been rebranded as as a uh, uh, U.S.-Mexico-Canada agreement, and suddenly it's the greatest thing ever because it's got a new name attached to it. So what Trump's views really add up to more than luster and show in this regard I'm afraid I could not give a definitive answer at this point, but his economics are simply worse than one would see in a you know, opening uh, two weeks of a trade course.
0: What, in your opinion, are plausible solutions to the various economic maladies that Donald Trump claims he wants to cure via his trade policies?
1: We have very high inequality of income and wealth in the United States. and it is true that international trade has probably widened the inequality. It's probably the case that as we opened trade with China, for example, 20 years ago, this helped big companies and capitalist owners a lot and probably hurt workers in the Midwest, uh, the ones that voted for Trump. It's not the only thing that hurt their wages because automation and technology also played a role, but trade probably uh, had a role. But what Trump absolutely will not see, and it's actually also outside of the vocabulary at the United States at this point, is what the most basic analysis Indicates, And that is that whether it's trade with China or other uh, parts of our trade, this has enriched the United States as a whole, but enriched part of the U.S. while hurting other parts. And the answer to such a conundrum is not to stop the trade, but rather to redistribute the gains. To some extent. So, the normal thing to do in trading with China would be to say, look, our companies, they're now worth trillions. Uh, Mr. Bezos uh, and uh, the uh, owners of Apple and so forth, well, they're multi gazillionaires now, uh, but other people are hurting. We should have a tax system that uh, takes uh, some of those gains. And redistributes them so that everybody is benefited from this. That would be the normal way to address this. Instead, Trump uh, gives not only a free pass to the rich, he cuts their taxes. That's his class interest. Uh, That's the interest of the funders of the Republican Party in particular, and partly the Democratic Party too. And so instead of redistributing, part of the winnings to parts of our country that have uh, been hurt by this, he goes to attack directly China or Mexico or others who he says have been involved in this nefarious evil business. Well, they haven't been involved in evil business. And the solutions lie within our country in a fair fiscal system, meaning both tax and spending. But we're becoming less fair in our fiscal system. Uh, Maybe Mexico won't be the object of attack because now Trump has uh, created uh, what he thinks is the most marvelous agreement in the history of the world with Mexico. But he's doubling down supposedly on the attack on China as this great nefarious uh, power. Of course, there's another aspect to the attack on China as well that needs to be recognized. And that is that China has simply had the temerity to have so much economic success that it has become a, a, a economic counterpart, basically on the scale of the United States itself. And that runs against the American exceptionalist self-understanding. How dare China do that? So Trump, in his attacks on China, mistakes the underlying economics because he should be going after the victors of trade and saying you contribute more to broad American well-being but he refuses to do that he attacks China on multiple exaggerated or completely fallacious grounds on a trade deficit that has nothing to do with these issues on a uh, uh, on on uh, China's ostensible cheating which is uh, phenomenally exaggerated, but easy to do in a nationalist attack mode. Uh, And on the foreign policy or geopolitical grounds, where he gets a lot of buy-in in in the establishment, that somehow we have to uh, kick China in in the knee uh, so that they stop running so fast because they're gaining on us. And all of it, to my mind, is bad economics and uh, dangerous uh, geopolitics.
0: Uh, you, in the book, there are various quotations uh, put out by the People's Republic in connection with the One Belt, One Road program, uh, which, from what you what appears in the book, you seem to take at face value. Isn't it the fact, though, that um, there is a... Somewhat overt neo-colonial hegemonic aspect to the One Belt One Road program, so much so that it's been attacked recently by the new Malaysian Prime Minister as well as the new Premier of Pakistan, and there were similar protests um, by African leaders recently about the terms of trade which the PRC enforces on them.
1: Yeah, it's a it's a good question. Uh China's become a major. Economic power and a uh, major trade and financial power in the world, and China is doing basically what the United States did vis-a-vis Europe uh, and uh, Central America or South America uh, and uh, Asia in the 1960s, 70s, and 80s. And that is, it is lending money, building projects and uh, trying to make the ground hospitable for Chinese multinational companies. Um, And this is what a major economy would do. Uh, It is part of uh, China's longer-term development that now that it has reached the levels of economic success, its companies are now investing outward to other parts of the world. And the Chinese government is in a sense, investing alongside the companies in building infrastructure and uh, making loans and so on. Neocolonialist? I don't think so. Uh, if you if Colonialism, to my mind, is uh, power and uh, military power. China has, as far as I know, uh, one overseas military base, uh, a small one in Djibouti. United States uh something like 800. So I don't view this as neo-colonial. I view it as uh, what a major economic power would do. Is it a good thing? On the whole, I would say yes if the quality of the investments that are being made and financed meet the test that they are good investments. They are Environmentally sound investments, which is a big deal because this is going to determine uh, the environmental future of a lot of countries, and whether they are fiscally and financially sound uh, investments in the sense that um, China's not lending money that is going to end up in a major financial crash up in future years. What's happening? Right now, uh, is uh, first that the third criterion is really coming under scrutiny because China lent a lot of money to low income African countries, uh, and those countries are facing a growing debt right now, and that debt is starting to squeeze. I don't think that that was neocolonialist. I think that that was the operating procedures of the Chinese Export Import Bank and the Chinese Development Bank. And my recommendation to China all all along has been make more grants, make these loans uh, far less commercial and far more concessional. And uh, China heard an earful from the Africans uh, about this recently, as you noted. All fine. Uh, Makes sense. I hope that China changes. I'm going to be in Beijing soon to make exactly the same point. Uh, The last thing in the world China or Africa needs is an african debt crisis. And I don't think it's uh, China's desire to do that, but it has been their standard operating procedure because these have been loans from banks, not really foreign policy grants. And only now China's uh, actually creating a development assistance agency, the kind that we created a half century ago, China's just now creating, and that will be uh, in advance Of course, if you're a military strategist who views everything in a zero-sum game, that it's either us or them, this looks alarming. Uh, How dare China build the roads, the power plants, the power generation, uh, the port facilities? That's China's neocolonialism. Well, if China starts putting in uh, dozens or hundreds of military bases abroad, we got a very serious problem. Uh, Of course, they'd only be emulating what the United States has long done, but I would say we would really have a a very, very dangerous world. But that has not been uh, the approach. I think it's unlikely to be the approach. And I think that it's not smart of us to bandy around uh, claims of that this is the same as a, a colonial pretensions. Colonialism was a, a dark, violent, military led phenomenon, uh, and um, it was deeply repressive. The United States has been a uh, party to it for decades uh, by overthrowing governments we don't like and uh, not usually directly conquering other territory though once in a while, usually trying to rule by proxy. But that's not what China's doing. China's not overthrowing governments like the United States. It's not establishing bases around the world. Right now, it's building its global economic presence. And on the whole, if the investments are good, that's a good thing to do mutually.
0: How do you see the current situation in North Korea since the Trump-Kim summit?
1: Well, I uh, <laughs> Our president and Chairman Kim are having a love affair, we're told by President Trump. Uh, God knows what to make of this man's mind. But uh, what we know is that nothing substantive has changed uh, in regard uh, of North Korea's nuclear capacity. It's got its weapons uh, and nothing fundamental has changed around that. Trump thinks that it has changed. I prefer this rather than uh, the everyday taunts and uh, declarations that we're going to uh, destroy you in a way never seen before. So if Trump's happy, I have to admit I'm happy <laughs> because uh, this is uh, just too bizarre. Uh, but it's uh, mostly in Trump's imagination, uh, the, the supposed progress. But I'd rather have that imagination of uh, how much he's in love with uh, Chairman Kim than what we had last year, which was uh, really extremely dangerous. Whether Trump swings at some moment and starts attacking North Korea for not denuclearizing and so on, of course, that can happen, too, because the facts on the ground are not as the president portrays them and probably not as he actually understands them in his own mind he i think probably believes what he says about most things that he's the greatest that the new trade agreement with canada and mexico is the greatest thing ever that uh, denuclearization uh, is actively underway in north korea and that the nuclear threat is gone and many other fantasies but um I don't really know for sure what he believes or doesn't believe or even whether it matters. It is bizarre.
0: What do you mean by sustainable development?
1: The idea of sustainable development is the idea that we should uh, try to make a a society and economy that uh, works sensibly for all in three ways. One, that in normal economic sense, our standard of living is high. Second, in a social sense, that our society is fair and bringing prosperity to all parts of the society so that uh, no uh, major group in society is left behind or no major region is left behind. And third, that we are managing our energy system and our petrochemical industry and our agriculture industry and our fisheries industry in a way that protects the environment rather than destroys it. So sometimes uh, it's called the the triple bottom line, economic, social, and environmental objectives. It's my uh, belief that uh, our economy does only the first of these three things, Well, uh, we create economic growth uh, pretty successfully, but our society is not fair, and it's become much less fair over time, and we're aggressively endangering the natural environment, and in the case of Trump, gleefully so, uh, because he's the biggest promoter of fossil fuels, which warm the climate and cause all the extreme storms and events that we're experiencing more and more. Uh, And because uh, he believes uh, in uh, the freedom of big business to pollute or to destroy the habitat of species at risk and so on. So by sustainable development, I mean that the world as a whole would commit to promoting and sharing prosperity in a way that is environmentally sensible. And this is exactly what the world has agreed to do in two major agreements reached a few years ago, the so-called Sustainable Development Goals and the so-called Paris Climate Agreement and unfortunately the us uh, is basically uh, uh not caring about either and pretty aggressively trying to torpedo the latter the, the climate agreement because in trump's view the, the most important thing for us is to uh dig and pump as much Coal, oil, and gas as we possibly can and sell as much of it to the rest of the world. A remarkably naive and short sighted and dangerous idea, but there you have it.
0: If you wanted uh, people to take one thing away from your book, what would it be?
1: That we have with our know how and our technology and a world now that has a, a lot of knowledge literacy capacity the chance to create uh, peace and interminable wars and actually solve some of the big challenges that we face, whether environmental or social. And that if we continue on the uh, old idea that international affairs are about American dominance, we're going to end up costing ourselves dearly more wars more destruction uh, even a basic threat to our democracy
0: I would like to thank you very much Professor for being so kind to speak to us today this is Charles Cotillo thanks for listening to New Books in History a podcast channel on the New Books Network thank you Professor
1: thank you great to be with you